Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hello City, a lighthearted educational podcast about the built environment. I'm your host, Lisa Dunaway, AICP, Lead AP. And this week, I have a guest named Clint, who is a regional planner. And I think I will just save any extra commentary from previous episodes, feedback I received for the next episode that will be guest free. So we can just get right into this one. Well, welcome to the podcast, Clint. I appreciate you coming on. And this is probably going to be your first of two visits to the podcast because you had two very good stories and we couldn't pick which one was better. So we'll just have part one and part two. And you are also our first guest from outside the state of Indiana. So I'm excited that the podcast has gone national now, at least Midwestern, because you are a regional planner in Iowa, correct? Yes, I am. Cool. So you want to tell us anything about your position? You don't have to give too many details, of course, but whatever would be helpful for the listeners to understand so that the story or lesson you're going to teach us makes sense. Sure. Um, So I think a lot of the guests so far on the podcast have kind of worked in local government or worked for a consultancy firm. I don't regional planning is a little bit different from those, um, those types of planning. Um, It kind of fits in the middle of the spectrum. If you consider those kind of on opposite sides, Um, regional planning, um, is primarily based upon transportation, um, but it's a very interdisciplinary field. It can vary considerably based upon each region's needs, um, state regulations, and even the different staff that work at these agencies, how committed they are to just following the minimum they have to do or whether they want to expand out their role, um, which I work for one that has expanded the role greatly. If someone was going to look into regional planning, um, fundamentally, there's something called a, a metropolitan planning organization. It's what most people would think of for regional planning. MPOs were founded when the interstate system was built and they help prioritize transportation spending um, in metro areas. Um, they span county, state, and city lines. So it ensures that there's some regional thought put into how you know, the transportation network has been developed. Now, where I work in Iowa, Iowa doesn't have a lot of cities that meet the criteria for an MPO. MPOs have to be over 50,000 in metro areas of 100,000. And as I like to bring up to acquaintances of mine in Indiana, Iowa's population is not much larger than the Indy metro region. So so we don't have many cities above that level um, to qualify for an MPO. So the state has created something called regional planning affiliates or RPAs. And RPAs essentially do what MPS do, but for rural areas. Interesting. It's a very nice tool um, for uh, building out those regional networks for transportation, um, as well as assisting a lot of our small towns um, who don't have a lot of staff to handle a lot of the planning um, issues that larger states and larger communities have. That makes a lot of sense because an MPA would do that for their surrounding smaller communities as well. Yes, they would. And we, I think MPOs and RPAs, we both, we fill that consultant void in a, a bit since we do charge lower fees or no fees. Um, so our plan, we're planners, we work kind of like consultants, um, but we also have that public 
sector responsibility um, dimension. Um, we have a long-range transportation plan that we follow that kind of guides how we work in, within the region. And I also like to bring up, we also have the pay benefits of pri- public sector workers. So... Uh, <laughs> So, it's a good one to point yeah, out. So, you know, we have kind of that middle middle of the spectrum all around. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were in school for planning, did you intend to work for an MPO or an RPA because of your interest in transportation? Or was it like the, the location that drew you to that job? Or I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. I well, when I started planning, I had no idea what an MPO was um, or any of the, and it took me about a year of working for one to actually figure out what it was. Yeah, that's fair. They're, they kind of are, <laughs> they vary so much, and they have a very specific role. That's they want you get it, you get it, just like with RPAs as well. But I kind of I chose my position because I wanted to move to a region that really needed a lot of help and actually use my experience and skills to. To help out in those areas. The region I work in, we have four counties of 100,000 people combined. It's a very post-industrial area. A lot of these communities have declined considerably. Um, so the work that we do has a really big and positive impact. Um, on Only one of our communities has planners. The mm-hmm. rest of them maybe have someone from the university extension office that can do some things or the chamber of commerce. Uh, but we we help out with these cities, the counties, the chambers, and advancing, you know, economic development goals, you know, improving quality of life, a lot of recreation. So it's been a really, it's a really good opportunity to see how concrete of an impact you can make um, just through your work. Even though transportation seems to be the impetus for why MPOs and RPAs were invented, You've already listed off a number of things in addition to transportation that you have, I don't know if jurisdiction is the best word over, but um, influence over. Um, so if you are a sort of person who wants to be more of a well-rounded Jack or Jill of all trades kind of planner, it sounds like an MPO or RPA could be a nice fit for you. Oh, absolutely. I think it's a uh, transportation planning is the impetus for why we exist. Um, but we don't do any modeling where I work. We we only, we run a regional transit bus system, but that's all handled by specific people. Uh, there's really not a whole lot of that hardcore transportation planning that we do. That might just be unique to Iowa, where Iowa has a big emphasis on its rural communities and small towns. It's kind of the values system of the state, but person wants to not confine themselves to one type of planning. I think regional planning would be a very awesome position for someone to go into, you know, to still have that sense of public service um, that, you know, consultants may not have, but you also have a very work schedule, very similar to them in regards to every day is different. There's new projects coming up all the time. You have to sometimes even recruit yourselves to get those positions, compete (laughs) for RFQs and RFPs. So, um, (laughs) so and sometimes you get to be the one to choose who gets the RFQ or RFP. Um, so you kind of get to do both sides of it. So that's cool. And I, I like that you brought up the public service aspect because so many planners, are interested in that career because of their interest in social social justice and helping people. I always say back when I taught nine, at least a nine out of 10 of 
every group of students that we would get in our department, if you asked them why they wanted to be a planner, it was because they wanted to help people. And I know you in particular are very gung-ho on uh, public service and civil service. So it seems like you found, a, a, at least for now, a really good position for your interests and skills. Oh, yes. It's been a regional planning is a great thing field to start out in and you know get a lot of experiences you wouldn't get for years in the other types of planning, especially when you move to a rural area where you know, there may, you have, you're the staff, you're the one they rely on, you know, there's not as much of a chain of people who could also work on it. So I think it, you have the skill set and the mindset to go for it. I would recommend moving to a rural area to start out so you can develop those really good experiences. They can always move into the cities once you've saved up some money as well with the lower cost of living. Our last guest, Kevin, would have agreed with you completely on that. I know he's been very happy um, being in a rural area, even though knowing him personally, that was a surprise to me when he went there. Likewise, it was a surprise to me when you went there. But now hearing you talk about it, it makes perfect sense. Is there any other information that would be helpful for, let's say, somebody who doesn't know anything about planning to understand or any terminology they should know before you go a little deeper into what you were going to talk to us about? I think if... Uh, for someone who doesn't know much about planning, uh, when they look at what regional planners do, we kind of fill in the gaps of what local government does, typically. Um, if there are, we help administer the county zoning for one of our counties. We write a lot of, we work with, I like to describe to the public that I meet that we deal with a lot of economic development, whether that's through infrastructure, building prioritizing roads to be built or helping get grants for various projects. Um, I think trying to just understanding where the, kind of go back to just where the gaps exist and where that's where regional planners fill. Um, there's not, I think if you have an issue with, you know, building codes or zoning, you'll typically go to your city. But if you have any broader ideas or any broader concepts that you want to work on or consider, I would reach out to your RPA or MPL, wherever you are, because I'm sure they're considering it or working on it. Yeah, very cool. All right. So let's get into your, I don't know, is it more of a story or a lesson? I think it's more of a few stories I have just to describe some of the kind of unique things that we do and kind of what if someone chose regional planning, how they could kind of the diversity of work they could get themselves into. Okay. Awesome. So I guess the first story I'll do is a project I'm working on currently. Um, we have a we have one. Our principal community has an airport that has passenger air service. It's a little eight seater plane. You know, it's kind of fun to fly because you get to sit up with the pilots. Um, <laughs> oh my it's, gosh! <laughs> it's, it's federally subsidized, so you can fly to Chicago for about fifty dollars one way. So it's a very good deal as long as you can handle kind of the coldness of the plane. They don't have a lot of heat um, <laughs> this time of year, but. Um, the airport's a very key resource for the region to have um, it, for economic development purposes, particularly with a lot of um, business leaders will fly in, you know, for the day or a couple of days on the flights. You know, it helps with, you know, attracting residents who have their own planes to fly in and out. It's a just a good resource to have. But our airport is right up against the city, which is kind of unusual for where airports are located. And 
it, we had a development come up recently. It would have been a four-story senior living right on the edge of the airport. And fortunately, they cut that down. If it was allowed to proceed, it would have resulted in the runway closing um, because it's an obstacle. But through this process, the airport discovered that the city's zoning code was completely out of date. Um, it, it referenced a map from 1946 that no one is sure where it actually is. Um, and it references a commission that was never formed. So it was very clear that uh, something had to be done. Um, so they called up the Regional Planning Commission to see if you know we could take it on. Mm. Last year, I, I received my, my drone license to fly drones for aerial imagery. So I had some unbased understanding of FAA terminology to work on. So I had to spend probably two full eight-hour days studying FAA regulations, how they define heights and and where obstacles are um, in relation to those heights, and had to prepare a presentation for a board of local government officials that described this complex terminology in a simple enough way for people to understand, as well as kind of outline the issues that were going into um, this process, you know, this development was probably a worst case scenario that almost happened. So it was very clear that there was a pressing issue and something had to be done. So we're working with the cities because we have our main city that has the airport right next to it, but also the airspace goes into the county and goes into a neighboring community. So we're working on updating the zoning codes for for all three entities uh, to ensure that there's an airport overlay, um, which will kind of supersede local zoning codes in those regions. I think and my one of my unique roles as a planner in this process has been um, when when you study information, it's your responsibility to you know promote the right 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 and accurate information. I think there was a lot of discussion about with this issue with you know, sometimes the emphasis was on the approach zones to the airport is what people were interested in regulating heights along. But this project that we were start started because of was in a zone called a transitional zone, and people wanted to leave that out because that's in more you know, developable land areas. And as a planner, you just have to speak up for um, what the right, what the right issue is. You know, I had to remind people about, you know, the different types of zones and how they all play into each other, how things are all interconnected and how we have to look at the broader picture if we're going to do this correctly. So we're still working, you know, through this process. Uh, We've been, I think, a good resource you'll find or other other peer agencies around the state. Um, we were able to contact a few other cities who had some more type of airports, get access to their zoning codes. We're working towards developing a, a plan, a zone that represents what the community needs, you know, the kind of the community's expectations uh, per se. Um, they like to build things very quickly and oftentimes without permission. So we're trying to um, have a code that's not going to force a whole lot of delay in the process, um, but also ensures that our airport is able to continue existing at its full capacity. Well, for sure. And you brought up a, a really important point, I think, several times here that I think planners underestimate maybe when they're going through school and then when they get out, even at their first job, they realize the importance of being able to communicate with people without all the jargon mm-hmm. and being able to define the terms that people need to know. But, you know, if you're patronizing or condescending about it, you're going to turn off the very allies that you need to get the things you want 
or know are the right things to do as a planner. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was pleased to hear that be one of the very first things that you mentioned. And you then you kind of reiterating that the importance of your role as an educator to the people that you were dealing with as part of this process. Absolutely. I think um, visuals help a lot um, with helping explain a lot of complex terminology. I brought up a big map of the airport and pointed out with different slides, like with different colors, where every zone was and described the information there and now on the visual. I think I learned in school to condense things down to a third grade level um, for for writing and uh, describing things. Um, And with the FAA, it's probably not to a quite third grade level, but it's definitely with the visuals can help you understand as much as you can reasonably expect people to without going into a lot of detail for what the topic matter is. Mm-hmm. As you said, like a planner's job is partially to educate. We need to make sure that, you know, we do so in the best way possible for each situation. Mm-hmm. Well, and Clint's mentioning the third grade level because um, the the American populace at large has a third grade reading level on average. But you're also bringing up a good point. If you're dealing with um, steering committees, focus groups, other more specific individuals in a community, then yeah, you absolutely have to go above that third grade reading level, especially if you're going to be talking about issues about transportation and the FAA and airports and runways. Um, You certainly still have to make yourself clear and define the things that need defined, but third grade isn't going to get it done (laughs) in that instance. (laughs) Not not quite, but as close as possible. Well, and a good planner knows how to switch their brain, you know, to the audience at hand. Absolutely. Another, you know, describe another kind of project I've been working on um, is we have one community. um, It's around 1,700 people, which, believe it or not, is one of our probably a middle tier community for our region um, in terms of population. It has a very desirable school district, which has attracted a lot of demand for um, homes in the community. But the town doesn't have a lot of available housing. So the community back in 2013 decided they wanted to build a subdivision to help provide opportunities for people to build homes and move to the district. However, Iowa really forbids touching agricultural land. You know, corn and soybeans are almost a religion here. So we had to, so state law really doesn't let you touch the agricultural lands. So the city purchased the land that they wanted to use for the subdivision and then talked about it for five years. And then I came into the picture last year when the city had decided they were ready to move forward. What the city wanted to do was create a tax increment financing district for area of land that they were going to build the subdivision on. And for your listeners, tax increment finance or TIF is where increases in property taxes for a specific area are given over to repay the debt that's used to improve that district. So to clarify, who gets what tax benefit to repay what debt? Um, under our law, under Iowa law anyway, it's say you build, you buy a, a vacant lot um, that's empty, has you know very little tax value, and then you build your house on top of it. Uh, that will your property taxes will then increase because of that. So if your taxes were a hundred dollars and now they're five hundred dollars, that four hundred will go to repay the debt 
that's used to build like the roads, the sewer, the water lines and such in that district. And versus that hundred dollars goes to like where it was going to go to before, like the schools, the city, the county and such. It's kind of a, it's a mechanism for the city to prioritize paying down debt and you know, be able to improve areas. Good. That's very helpful. It's a really good tool. Under Iowa's laws, we have to write something that's horribly called an urban renewal plan if we're going to do a TIF district. And if you know anything about the history of urban planning, urban renewal is not a very good terminology. But <laughs> but so we're not, this is a, a former field, I should say. It was not an active field because we can't touch agricultural areas. Um, so we're not really disturbing the old community like the history of urban planning. We're just... So when I use urban renewal, for your listeners' sake, we're not talking about <laughs> 1960s urban renewal. Um, so I had to write. So I was given a, a template and an example of some plans that we've done before for urban renewal. Had to coordinate with the city clerk, who was really awesome. Just go back and forth between her with the city engineer, who was a consultant. Go back and forth with the city's attorney, who was a consultant out of Des Moines. And kind of figure out the legal language that needed to be in the plan. Figure out the development proposal, get a subdivision layout, nail down exactly how much they wanted to borrow, and put this into kind of a dry and boring plan that's a requirement before it for the TIF district to be founded. But I think one thing planners have to do is planners have to be very much on top of the small details um, because sometimes those things will not be noticed. And it quickly became apparent with this project that there were a lot of small details that had to be addressed. One of them was an, uh, the urban renewal plans. So your, your TIF district plan had to be done in conjunction with the city's comprehensive plan. And um, when I looked at the city's comprehensive plan, it had a, it had self-expired a year prior. Mm. And the lawyer wasn't sure, we weren't sure if that actually meant the plan expired or if that meant the plan was still going. Um, <laughs> and we, we couldn't find the city resolution that even authorized the plan. So we had to end up just amending the comprehensive plan and readopting it. So I was doing this very typical, you know, boring plan. Then I had to go in and re-update the comprehensive plan with data that was relatively updated. A lot of the data before was from the 90s. Um, in 2000. So it was um, a process to relocate all that data and add it into the new comprehensive plan for the community. Um, and it was to make sure it was designed better than the old plan so that it may not sit on a shelf as much as the other one did. Yeah, clearly. They clearly had. And we also amended it to kind of reflect what the city was thinking at that time, even if it was kind of a rough update of the plan. We took out a self-expiring date as well. Um, so hopefully when the city has some more funds, they can re-update that once once they get settled on things. Um, then I discovered um, the city also had a tax abatement for the entire city um, to encourage development. So if you wanted to build something, you could get your taxes waived for a few period of a few years, and that would make TIF districts completely pointless if you had no property taxes. Um, so we had to then go in and amend their urban revitalization area plan um, and exclude urban renewal or TIF districts from that. And I was finally, I was, we had all the details settled. Everyone was happy. I was creating the map. You know, that they're going to put in the plan and they're going to build a big sign out front that shows the phases of the subdivision. And then I realized that part of the land they thought was in the city was actually not. It was in the it was in the county. They had 
they had not annexed part of their main road <gasps> for whatever reason. They had a about a two quarter of a mile strip of it was in the county, even though it was owned by the city. It was the city street. I have no idea why they had never annexed it and the city clerk did it either. So I had to go through Iowa statutes, Iowa laws and figure out all the notification periods and requirements for all of these types of plans. Um, we had to make sure that every plan was a, we had to make sure the comprehensive plan was done first, followed by the urban revitalization plan, followed by the annexation, followed by the urban renewal plan, so that one plan didn't supersede the other, um, so that we can make sure everything was going to go and happen correctly. Um, wow. So you got to really be on top of the details, it's very small details in planning. So was the, even though the, this part wasn't annexed, did they already have infrastructure extended yes. out there? Whoa. Yes, they they already had infrastructure on it. It was a road they'd been maintaining forever. They just assumed it was in city limits, but wow. it, it was not. And it was one of the main roads leading into the subdivision. So they wanted to include it so that they could like, you know, do road repairs on it. Sure. Um, since only funds can only be expended in the area that is in the district. So sure. it was, it didn't turn out to be that big of a deal because it was all owned by the city. Um, so we didn't have to deal with, you know, property owners who, if they didn't want to be annexed, they don't really have to be in Iowa. We avoided a lot of those circumstances. Jeez. That was a good catch, man. <laughs> it, I was very, sh- I had to make sure we had the correct GIS files and everything because our, <laughs> our GIS servers are a mess that I want to clean up every day. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those small details you just got to stay on top of. Wow. Yeah. No, you're making a good point. I, I mean, I always hesitate to say it out loud to people, especially when they're going through school to be a planner or if they're a young planner. If someone's not a detailed oriented person, I always wonder are you going to like being a planner or a landscape architect or an architect or a civil engineer? Like anything related. I don't know. It's really hard. It seems really hard to be able to, if you're a 30, 50,000 foot overview, big idea sort of person, but don't like to pay attention to the details and do the follow through and the implementation. I always, mm-hmm. I always feel like those, those folks are going to struggle in these built environment professions, but I always loved the details. So maybe that's why I'm two of these professions <laughs> mushed together. <laughs> um, but if you hadn't paid attention to that, I mean, it doesn't sound like it would have been the end of the world, but it could have caused problems down the road. So, yeah, like you were saying, um, a lot of times when people realize that they may be annexed, they get upset about that. So you were able to preempt all of that drama, which is nice. Yeah, absolutely. And it, uh, planning is... You know, I think people who are organized and detail-oriented will tend to like it. <laughs> if you like to keep your files organized <laughs> in your server. People, mock, people make fun of me at the office for how organized my stacks are <laughs> and how they're all organized at right angles. So <laughs> I hope someday you get time to organize your GIS server because that would be very satisfying. <laughs> I have gone after the tea cabinet and the break room. So we are we're making, we're making progress there towards the server. That makes it. That makes a lot of sense to be the place to start. You got to ease your way in and not ruffle too many feathers. Exactly. So I guess I'll go into a uh, kind of a more lighthearted story of public engagement um, that we've been working on. Um, reached, I think planning as a whole tends to struggle with getting the public engaged. Um, but I think particularly at the regional level, trying to tell people come to the regional planning affiliates event 
they don't know what that is. Um, so we are, we're working on a bicycle and pedestrian plan um, that will help to guide the development of multi-use paths, bike lanes, and such in the community. We got our first bike lane last year, and it was quite a thunderstorm locally. Um, so we are we also were able to complete a few of the projects from the previous plan. So we thought it was time to re-update things. We really wanted to make sure that we got as much public input as possible. Um, since there's a lot of times, especially in small towns, the same people say the same things and get the same results. So you wanna try to expand the conversation. So we met with a lot of stakeholders before we held public meetings, such as the biking groups on each of the the two cities involved, um, the county, as well as the Chamber of Commerce, and discussed with them kind of what they perceived as the state of the infrastructure in the area, what they thought the needs were. Um, And we kind of came to a very clear idea early on that the public wanted a loop trail around the community. One trail that kind of went out for 25 miles into the country um, to a park, which was nice for the long distance people. But the public uh, was you know, becoming very interested in this idea of something more within the city. So we kind of built upon those uh, meetings and that input, held pub- two public meetings. Um, they were One was very well attended. We had around 40 people come. We recruited heavily through social media, uh, word of mouth. The people read the newspaper around here, so we put it in there. Um, We had big boards that people could use stickers to put where they wanted things. Love it. Um, The green would be where they wanted paths (laughs) and trails, and red would be not. And kind of a pattern that we expected to emerge emerged, um, which was really great to see. It was one of those, like, fantastic public meetings that, you know, planning people will rave about for years to come. (laughs) You'll talk about it like 20 years from now. There was that one bike ped plan. Yes, I will. We have have pictures to prove it. Um, (laughs) But we had a follow-up meeting the next night, and this is where you have to be very cognizant as a planner of what's going on in the community, um, since probably the planning meeting isn't going to take priority in people's lives. Um, There was a big um, bike race going on that day. We didn't have a lot of people come to that meeting. Um, We had one person who was running for city council who was opposed to bikes, trails, parks, Pretty much everything that didn't involve repaving his the street in front of his house, which was actually turning into a bike lane, which was a big issue with him. Um, I kind of love it, though. It was kind of I, I didn't really know much about him until he came to the meeting. And also who also came to the meeting was the local news media. Um, so they didn't come to our nice, well attended, happy meeting. They came to our meeting with one person who went on to lose his race for city council. Yay! Unfortunately. Uh, so no anti-planning person (laughs) (laughs) one thing i really learned from that process was you know the value of you know working with the people who are actively involved in the issue Um, like the biking groups particularly were really dedicated and interested in the matter um, and they really helped drive our turnout and also you need to definitely make sure that you review you know your community calendar or what's going on in town to make sure you're, you're not competing with things because otherwise that could really stifle mm-hmm. your public input. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. Um, the bigger the municipality, because you're going to compete with more things, but it obviously is even a, an issue in our rural area. And sometimes 
communities don't have some sort of centralized calendar or they have multiple competing calendars or someone doesn't update the calendar regularly. So that can be very frustrating for planners. So it can. And I think in rural towns, you have to know that Wednesday night is church night. So you can't try to schedule Mm -hmm. things on that night um, Mm because a lot of people are preoccupied. And there is a lot of there is a pretty big decentralization of events. It's kind of a struggle too that I've encountered throughout my planning occupation so far. Um, Mm. So it's hard to, you really just got to work with the people that you know who are going to come and ask, you know, hey, you know, what else is going on in town? If you have a good enough rapport with them, you might find out more information that way. Well, you're bringing up a a really nice point and it ties in well with the, the last guest we had too. Planners in the in the last decade or so have really come to realize that the rural population is very significant and can't be ignored. And just because they, you know, statistically aren't as affluent or aren't as educated or will probably disagree with things you want to do, that doesn't mean that you can sweep them under the rug or ignore them completely. And it's a very interesting um, emerging or maybe it's past emerging at this point, but definitely um, a hot topic in planning these days, um, methods to engage more rural communities. And then mm-hmm. those issues of not being patronizing and, and being open-minded and, and letting people feel like they've been heard. And perhaps there are educational components, but you know, not being condescending to people and, and making sure they realize that their opinions are valid. People that have that skill set as a planner are very much in demand now that the the profession is moving in this this direction i think is very important that we move in in order to engage more diverse communities that doesn't just mean socioeconomic or racial diversity it means diversity of you know the people throughout the geography mm-hmm. of your area absolutely i found as well that like there are other people you know who work for my agency that aren't planners and they've lived around here their whole lives so they kind of have that they understand what we do um so they have kind of that perspective but they also have that local you know knowledge and insight um so we've used a lot of the the staff to be kind of sounding boards for you know various policies and proposals because they are more much more in tune with the area than us planners who work there who all moved here out of school and we're not as local as the administrative staff at the agency definitely are i always have told clients it's important even though they may be staff planners at the, the local municipality, it's important for them to be in, in those meetings as well because they can speak to the local issues. They have that knowledge. They can correct you when you're wrong. Um, they can help temper assumptions that, you know, even the best of planners with the best intentions might make, um, biases they may have. But then you're a, you're a familiar face um, to at least some of those people Um and that's really important um, to have that that local connection when you go into communities. But it's also great to have someone like you who's from out of state come into that office because planners or, you know, people who have worked in a community for so long, they can also fall into the trap of making assumptions that they know more about the current status of their community than they really do. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine was telling me how she went into this southern indiana very rural community like thirty thousand, i think to help them work on some sort of planning project and all of the people 
on her primary steering committee were white men over the age of 55. And they had no idea until she did some number crunching and told them that a third of their community was Hispanic. <laughs> yeah. Because they had never engaged with those folks. They had never interacted in any way with those folks. Um, didn't realize that, you know, they had this huge workforce in their community. And it was just because they were so entrenched in their ways, I guess, um, that they assumed that everybody was still just like them. And she, she had to break the news to them that even in rural Indiana, things are changing. Yeah, that's I've encountered a similar um, issue with our, um, we have a steering committee for this bicycle and pedestrian plan. And it's been my number one mission to have as much diversity on it as possible. Uh, I really went out on a limb to try to find, we had, we had a whole host of older white men who wanted to, to be a part of it. Um, but I went out to try to find, we could have, so we could have women members on board. Um, we were able to get two women on board of this five person committee. Um, which was a, one of probably a first for planning in the area, and I went out on a limb for a younger, younger guy who's about twenty five to see if you know he could get onto the board. He didn't have a lot of clout in the community like some of the other people did, but he had a very he probably would have a good perspective, you know, that wasn't being represented. And we had our first steering committee meeting, and he was very. I went out on a limb for him, and he performed very well. So nice. I think it's a testament to having diversity. You need to take it may shatter a few, you know, perspectives that people have about the area. You know, and make it much more relevant to the community as a whole. And you know, for those people, you may have to leave off the steering committee who. You know, for diversity, you can still go talk to them and, you know, get their input and involve them as well. And so we we're still meeting with a few other people off the committee just to make sure that all all the people who need to feel like they need to be involved are being involved. That sounds like you struck a really nice balance that way, because, again, you the people that volunteer to help um, sometimes are few and far between. (laughs) (laughs) it's hard to get people to involve get involved sometimes you would think i mean i guess i'm a planner so i want to be involved in it all (laughs) yeah the average person does not want to be (laughs) i know it's hard to imagine sometimes so i guess i'll go into one final uh one final story here i talked a lot about non-transportation things but state dot does pay my salary so i feel like i should talk about some transportation things we do I, when I started last year, we did not have an intern, so I got all the interns' things to do, and so they've just <laughs> continued with me now. So I am in charge of our traffic counting program. The state DOT will will put out tubes on the highways and track, you know, what the traffic is, what types of vehicles are on it. They don't really go into the communities very often, especially the smaller towns, and these communities really want to know well, what's going on with the roads in their community. Are there where are the trucks going so they can, you know, delineate truck routes or there's a lot of times perceptions, you know, in town of what's going on on the roads and we're able to kind of help show them from a data perspective, at least what is going on in their communities. One town um, this summer, they wanted to know every single entry point in the town, what was going in, what was going out. It became clear um, through conversations with the public when uh, my intern and I were out doing it this summer that there were a lot of trucks going through town, um, which was kind of different from what had historically been the case. It was a, a town of, again, about 1,700, about a middle tier community. 
it was different um, that have that much traffic going through town. And through their traffic counts, we were able to find out that triple the number of trucks were going north rather than south through town, um, which seemed a bit odd. It took, you know, three times to get this count to work because a heat wave fried a few counters. There was an an untimely asphalt repaving incident. And then there was, and the third time was successful. Um, So it's one thing I had, so it took a few times to get it. So we knew the data was accurate um, through all these attempts. Um, There were a lot more trucks going through town than then going south through town and uh gosh that's that's square one for so many planners is doing traffic counts <laughs> it is square one it is a i was very nice to our intern this summer um i had to do it all last year by myself so i went out there with him this time and i did i definitely was more of the supervisor um but he got some more stories to tell his friends back at school um, from his summer well it's a rite of passage as a planner it is and, but but what we were able to find out, um, the state had completed a four-lane highway to the about a few miles to the west of there about four or five years ago, and they put a way station just on the northbound side and not the southbound side because they were entering the great state of Iowa um, not too long before that. These trucks were bypassing the way station by going through ah! town. Um, so... Adds a lot of you know cost to these. You know, I would assume these are a lot of heavier trucks that are bypassing the way station. Um, maybe trucks that don't want to pay a fee. Um, so the community is now well aware of that issue. Dang it, that's kind of smart. <laughs> It is smart. I'm not sure what they can actually do about it, but uh, because I'm sure the trucker will just say they're not going north, they're going east or something. (laughs) But um, there was also one kind of funnier uh, story with traffic counting. Um, We installed some pedestrian counters out on a trail um, near our main community, and it was in a very, very rural area. Um, I think everyone, locals are skeptical the trail is used, and I honestly am myself. Um, so I put up the counters. They're kind of infrared, so if they have a heat source that kind of walks at human height past past them, they'll pick that up as a person. So you'll get the occasional deer, but <laughs> I mean, it is more or less accurate. Um, but this counter, when I got the results, it had around a thousand people were wow. using them, which um, we're about ten miles out of town. The trail has been partially washed out due to flooding. Very unlikely a thousand people are walking past it on a particular day. But what I did realize whenever I was reflecting back was it was kind of next to a pasture and there were cows in the (gasps) pasture. So at certain times of the day, the cows would move into the camera's (laughs) zone and it would think that, you know, cows are pretty big and they're about human height. Um, So, you know, it was a cow count and we just got a cow count. So, um, Which I need to look up the farmer on GIS and figure out who they are and just let him know when uh, when the cows are coming by because they were it, they were it was certain times of the day that the cows would would go nearby um, so it was I guess they have their own habits and rituals but <laughs> so we got a cow count <laughs> oh my gosh that should be the title of the episode that's adorable <laughs> that's a lot of cows. It was a, it was a lot of cows, so <laughs> I guess they're guess they're hanging out on that side of the pasture quite often. Well, they were probably aware that the trail was there, and they came to people watch, even if it was just a few. That's probably something new to look at. For so sure, I, I'd run over there myself. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> oh, that's adorable, but not really another way to do that. 
Yeah, there's not really you know? a way other than the infrared to, <laughs> to do pedestrian counts because people will step over a tube. I step over tubes um, when they're on the mm-hmm. sidewalk. I guess next year we'll have to pay attention to make sure pastures aren't included. <laughs> or send your intern out to do a first-person visual count. Ugh. Oh, we did. Uh, the intern this summer, he was a quite quite a trooper. We had to guess <laughs> one other transportation story quickly. We had a, the local... Um, bus system um, to make for efficiencies, see how it's operating. Um, and I wanted to go out and ride the bus to see how the bus was actually going firsthand rather than just look at data. Something in my education and planning was, you know, getting the people involved and, you know, see, figuring out what the people want. I had this brilliant idea to go out and ride the bus. And our intern got to ride the bus for about eight hours a day for two weeks, <laughs> um, tracking points on our collector. And I rode, I rode it for some of the time as well. Um, he definitely will remember his time in town riding the bus. <laughs> And I, we, I saw him at our state chapter conference a couple weeks ago, and all his friends were there, and they all knew about the bus, <laughs> and they knew about traffic counting. I hope it didn't put him off public transportation forever. I hope not. I think he, he had some good comments on what he thought needed to be done, so I included them in the report that I wrote, and he, he has something to laugh about. Well, I'm glad you didn't ignore all of his comments after you made a ride it for 80 hours. <laughs> Yeah, he, you know, he had a lot of insight from that, so I can't ignore that. Heck yeah. Well, cool. Do you have any other words of wisdom or tidbits you want to share? I think just fundamentally, regional planning is, uh, you know, it's every day is different. You never know what you're going to get yourselves into, but it's a, uh, you know, a very fun and active type of planning. Get down on the ground level and get to. You know, work your way up. It may not be in the flashy city. Um, you may not have all the amenities of life. You may get excited when you drive into town and find a Dunkin' Donuts somewhere um, <laughs> that you haven't had in a long time. But um, but I think you get a lot of life experiences that you're not going to get as a entry level planner for many years to come. You can get them right away. Mm-hmm. So. For those planners out there, I think you should make the step to an MPO or RPA and don't leave out the little towns because you get a lot of good stories from it. Well, that's awesome. I mean, I'm sold. Now I'm a little jealous that I'm not a regional planner. (laughs) I may have made bad career choices. Well, I appreciate you coming on. This has been so much good information and I appreciate how well laid out you presented everything. And I really look forward to having you back to talk about your other stories um, Mm -hmm. at some point in the near future. So thank you, Clint. All right. Well, thank you, Lisa. So one more time, a big thank you to Clint for being my guest. I'm hoping that I will be able to get him back on before the end of the year, because I know he has some more good stuff to tell us. And if you would like to be a guest on a future episode, either recorded or I can just read your message, please send me an email at hellocitypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Hello City Pod, and I'm happy to get ideas through tweets. If you have questions for Hello City Help, I'm happy to take those either of those places. I'm also on Instagram and YouTube at Hello City Podcast. So we didn't swear today, so there's no need to bleep this version. But if you want to listen to bleeped versions of past episodes, those are all on the YouTube channel. 
You can also shortcut to those from my website, hellocitypodcast.com. And there are also links to my Patreon there. So thank you always for listening. There probably won't be a predictable schedule for the rest of the year with the holidays and everything, but hopefully at the beginning of 2020, I'll be able to put out a new episode every week or every other week or so. I look forward to speaking with you again next time. And remember, make no small plans. Have a great day. a Duncan on Tillotson and as soon as the sign went up I thought of you I, I was sent pictures of it so <laughs> I, I'm aware whenever I'm back in Muncie I will go to that Duncan for sure I hope it's open by the next time you come because they've transformed um, a former Burger King into it but it has been a very slow mm-hmm. slow renovation process <laughs> Yeah, I've been keeping track and it seems to be quite a slow process there. Yeah. <laughs> like it's worth coming back to Muncie because we will finally have a Duncan. Perfect. <laughs> I will be back to Muncie to try it.